0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and
1: more.
2: Hi, Fanu Filali here again from Background Briefing. The person you're about to meet once leaked thousands of classified documents that exposed the staggering levels of abuse and neglect happening under Australia's watch inside the Nauru Offshore Processing Centre. She took enormous risks to do it and never shared her story. That's until now. For this episode of The Whistleblowers, a special series by Background Briefing, she confided in Paul Farrell, a journalist she knew she could trust. Before we start, a heads up. This story has some confronting themes and some strong language.
0: In the dead of night on the remote Pacific island of Nauru, a woman sneaks into an old, demountable building. Inside, there's a small office. She sits down and switches on a computer. She's not supposed to be here. There are guards nearby and she worries they might see the light from the screen. She's searching for something specific. She glances around, the room is empty. She plugs in a hard drive and starts downloading files. The woman is gathering documents from within Australia's Offshore Processing Centre on Nauru. The files contain eyewitness accounts written by teachers, caseworkers, and guards. Dark and disturbing reports of what's been happening to asylum seekers detained here on Nauru over the past three years. Suicide attempts, sexual violence, child abuse, discrimination, harassment, self-harm. Hundreds and hundreds of confidential reports that are not supposed to leave these offices. Slowly and carefully, she adds these files to a vast archive she's been building now for weeks. The computer is slow. It takes half an hour for the download to finish. She unplugs the hard drive, slips it into her pocket, and steps back into the dark night. The stakes are high. What she's doing weighs on her, but she feels it's the right thing to do.
3: It was the choice between leaving or leaking what was happening there, and so I chose the ladder.
0: We're calling this woman Simone. We've disguised her voice to protect her identity, and this is the first time she's ever spoken. A few months before that night, Simone is arriving at Brisbane Airport, about to board her first flight to Nauru. There's a group of people milling about, her new work colleagues. She's meeting them for the first time. It's a little like the first day of school.
3: I remember being at the airport in Brisbane with a group of colleagues who were all about to fly, and a lot of them talking about what goes on on an island, like... You've got to prepare yourself. Like, you really can't understand it until you're there.
0: It's 2016, and Simone is about to start her new job at the Australian-run processing centre in Nauru. She signed up to help asylum seekers held offshore. Simone's usually shy, but here at the airport, she makes friends quickly.
3: We were passionate about the reasons for being there. We all openly spoke about how we disagreed with the offshore processing. So we all had a similar sort of sense of justice and human rights.
0: It's about a five-hour flight from Brisbane to Nauru. As the plane approaches, she sees how small it is, just a tiny speck in the vast ocean. When the plane touches down, she steps out. The air's heavy, humid she's struck by the barren landscape.
3: It felt like one big island detention centre. Yeah, a lot of white phosphorus rock with pinnacles on either side of the road and then driving through a gate that was um, quite heavily guarded. Yeah, it was a lot of metal chain link fence and white phosphorus rock and Sun. A lot of hot sun.
0: They give her a tour of the centre. It's already been open for four years, but it still looks like a makeshift camp. There's thin-walled demountables and canvas tents.
3: I saw her asylum seekers housed in the high-risk section. Walking past them, they're in their rowing section, surrounded by, you know, this metal chain-link fence. Watching us all just walking...
0: More than 500 asylum seekers are held here living in two main areas, one for single men and another for single women, families and children. A ring of metal fencing surrounds each area and there are metal detectors at every entrance point. This is now Simone's workplace.
3: You'd go down into the camp. You'd go through the metal detectives. You would visit your clients. You would follow up on the various requests that they had made or the various needs they had.
0: Over time, she gets to know the place and the people. She learns their names, where they've come from, their stories. But there's a darkness here. Children are harming themselves. whole families can't get out of bed. Simone's never seen anything like it.
3: A lot of the interactions were responding to people's suicidal ideation and assessing the severity of that or the risk of that and trying to provide them hope.
0: And while Simone moves around the centre, one sound seems to follow her everywhere. It's static from walkie-talkies. All the guards carry them.
3: That sound, the shh sound that that makes, um, you could hear that often. Some of the female asylum seekers used to call them the click-click men, which was the men with the walkie-talkies.
0: The click-click men put everyone on edge. And for good reason. Some of those guards will later be accused of abusing and sexually assaulting women in the centre. On Nauru, everyone is being watched. When an incident occurs, a self-harm attempt or an assault... Workers must report it. Simone remembers scribbling out these forms, like diaries of despair. As the months wear on, these incident reports pile up. Simone doubts whether she can keep working within this system.
3: Any complaints you made, any incident reports you wrote, um, any advocacy in any form fell on deaf ears. It also felt like the Australian public had no idea what was going on. And every day people's human rights were being breached in front of us and witnessing the treatment of asylum seekers by people who worked there, particularly guards and even other employees. I just couldn't handle the injustice of it.
0: The hardest part is what she sees happening to families. Nauru has only one small hospital, so sometimes people in need of serious medical care are sent to Australia. One day, a family Simone gets to know needs evacuation.
3: The wife got quite sick and she was medevaced to Australia. And I just watched this family, try and get any information on the medical care, where she was, how long she would be there, when they would be coming back... Um, how they could speak to them. And I just watched this, like, beautiful family completely deteriorate before my eyes for no good, valid, logical reason. Yeah, I just... So that really, um, I think, set me off.
0: She's not sure how much more she can take. She confides in a friend a colleague who's about to leave the island for good. They offer one piece of advice. Go talk to a journalist.
3: And they said to me, like, you have to do this. And they passed on a media contact. It's actually the only way that you'll survive.
0: Simone doesn't know it at the time, but it's my number. My name's Paul Farrell. At this point, I'm working as a reporter at The Guardian, investigating the immigration detention system. Sometimes I pick up the phone and on the other end there's a faraway voice from Nauru with a story of despair. Sometimes staff contact me, but fewer and fewer people are willing to speak out. A year earlier, the Coalition government had introduced a new law, the Australian Border Force Act. It criminalises whistleblowing from workers within the detention system. Around the same time, federal police agents accessed my phone records, hunting for my source on a story about Australia turning back asylum seeker boats to Indonesia. One afternoon, I'm sitting at my desk and I get a call through an encrypted messaging app. It's Simone. She's hesitant, but she wants to talk. What were you thinking when you were just even taking those little small steps to have those conversations with me?
3: I was thinking about risk. you know. There was a reason that. They put a media blackout and and a three-year jail term and other people weren't, the majority of people weren't engaging with the media. So I was thinking about risk and how to do it safely. Um, I was thinking about how do you work with a journalist? We're in different places. Um, We have different roles in the process. We might have different goals, even.
0: Simone's on Nauru and I'm in Sydney. She tells me about self-harm incidents by children, about shocking allegations of assaults on asylum seekers by guards and by local Nauruans, events she believes Australians need to know about. She hasn't told anyone that we're talking and she feels more and more isolated.
3: It was very challenging um, and it felt like... I wasn't fully present because I was doing something that I was hiding from others, from my friends and my colleagues.
0: For months, we just talk. I don't know it at the time, but Simone has bigger plans. She has something she wants people to see.
3: I knew this was very strong evidence because it's indisputable.
0: The evidence Simone is talking about are thousands of formal incident reports logged by detention staff over the years.
3: Signed by multiple people and seen by multiple people. Um, This was what would be most powerful to share and have the most impact.
0: She's been collecting that evidence over weeks, sneaking into an office at night to download as many incident reports as she can. While she worries about being caught, accessing this sensitive data is surprisingly easy.
3: Because I was like, okay, this might be a bit tricky to collect all of this quietly. They're so damning that why wasn't there a concerted effort to have these passwords protected and inaccessible to people if they also knew that people were leaking on islands? It's like people didn't understand how absolutely damning these documents were and how horrible the situation was.
0: Eventually, she has enough. Her plan now is to get those incident reports off the island. But she has to be careful. The Nauru police have already raided the offices of Australians working on the island, hunting for leakers.
3: I would have been kicked off island, I mean, my understanding is that the Nauru police force had grounds to arrest me. I was very anxious a lot of the time. Internally, thank God. Now that didn't come out externally.
0: So Simone takes one last big risk and walks straight through Nauru's airport, carrying more than 2,000 secret files on a hard drive. She's headed for Australia. I'm sitting on a bar stool inside a busy cafe in Sydney, waiting for Simone. All I know at this stage is she's got something she wants to share with me. She walks in and sits down. I can see she's nervous. She keeps scanning the room to check who else is there. We make small talk for a while. Then she leans over, puts her hand inside her bag and pulls out a storage drive. She slides it over to me and reveals the secret she's been keeping all these months.
3: There's a lot of documents on here that are very damning and please look at them and doing what you can with them, but just protect the identities of the sound seekers.
0: These days, Simone remembers it as a passing of the torch moment.
3: That's what stuck with me, because at that point I wanted to be done with it (laughs) and so for me it was so it was a pivotal moment because I was like here it is and this is it this is the last thing I can possibly do I've got nothing else left in me and it was the moment for me
0: I didn't know that at the time that it was like this unburdening for you
3: yeah onto you
0: (laughs) yeah yeah that was when the work began for me and and my colleagues at the time Hey. I'm sitting in the ABC offices with my colleague Madison Connaughton.
4: Look at this one. From March 7, 2014. It says, child involved, um, the UAM compound. What's, What's UAM?
0: She's been working with me on this story and we're going through the files that were on that drive Simone gave me. So UAM, that's unaccompanied minors. It's been years since I've looked at them. In fact, it's something I've actively avoided. It's grim reading.
4: Okay, it says, A worker observed that the letter Z had been scratched into blank's left arm. When asked, blank stated that he had done it with a rock. The redacted part, so that's the name of the asylum seeker.
0: Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, basically, so we spent months just going through every single one of these of these pages and, and made all, all of those redactions as part of the story process. And that's because we just didn't want to disclose any identities of, of the people there. And, and I obviously made that promise to Simone as well.
4: Um, there's another one that I just saw. What was that? Oh, yeah, from October 2014. So that's later that same year. And it says, whilst discussing the health of redacted and the impact the last few weeks have had on her, she revealed that one asylum seeker is trying to organise a mass suicide. She stated that at last count, there are at least 30 people who are willing to take part.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's pretty harrowing, yeah.
4: When you were going through all of these and you know making all the redactions and trying to stack everything up, were you talking to the whistleblower?
0: I was still in touch with them, but not often. I actually told her that we probably just wouldn't be able to talk for for quite a while after the story came out. And, you know, eventually we did get the all clear. The Guardian's editors in the UK wanted to run it on their front page. And, you know, we were kind of ready and he'd go. Assaults, sexual assaults, bullying, blackmail, self-harm and reports of a child with their lips sewn together. The Guardian newspaper has been leaked by a whistleblower or whistleblowers, plural, more than 2,000 incident
1: reports from Australia's Nauru detention camp.
0: It's August 10, 2016, and The Guardian has just published the Nauru files. For me, it's a dizzying series of live crosses and radio interviews. Between them, I rush to a press conference to question then-Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and his treasurer, Scott Morrison. Prime Minister, why has the government allowed these kind of incidents to continue? Well... Well, as you know, and Scott, as a former uh, immigration minister, may want to add to this, but we continue to support the Nauru government to provide for the health, welfare, and safety of all transferees. And Turnbull energies. reads carefully from the, from the talking points in front of him, promising to look into the incident reports. Morrison speaks off the cuff. So, and I just know the incident reports, as you know, Paul. Uh, are reports of allegations, they're not findings of fact in relation to an incident. Peter Dutton, then immigration minister, said he wouldn't tolerate abuse but cast doubt on some of the reports. I won't tolerate any sexual abuse whatsoever, uh, but I have been made aware of some incidents that have been reported, uh, false allegations of sexual assault, because in the end people have paid money to people smugglers and they want to come to our country. Just days afterwards, 103 current and former offshore detention staff sign a letter calling on the government to bring all people held on Nauru to Australia. Around the country, there are protests against offshore detention. Advocates even crash a speech the Prime Minister gives on economic development.
3: ...science agenda, which you've just heard.
2: Our historic investment in defence industry.
0: Simone watches on as people rally and her former colleague starts speaking out.
3: It was overwhelming. And as soon as it was published, you could sense it was going to be big.
0: She's struggling to process the scale of what's unfolding.
3: I was having breakfast with my mum and then I just started crying, which was really cathartic because I was like, okay, this is now like it's over, in a way. And then I sort of started seeing people talking about them and being like, this is great, oh my gosh, who did this? We need to rally, start engaging the media, we need to come forward.
0: But Simone can't take part. A few weeks later, Prime Minister Turnbull announces a resettlement deal for refugees on Nauru and Manus.
2: The
3: agreement is with the
0: United States. It is a one-off agreement... It will not be repeated. But instead of celebrating what should have been her win, Simone feels increasingly isolated.
3: I felt alone, quite alone, actually, and, like, I couldn't really engage in it because of the risk. I've repressed a lot of those feelings. I think I've got needed to do a lot more processing after those files were released on Nauru as well as on my role in the Nauru Files. So I really didn't share those feelings with anyone. But I, looking back, felt... Yeah, I did feel a bit sort of discomfort from it and I couldn't really talk to anyone about it.
0: Hearing her say this now, I wish I'd thought a little bit more about what that would have been like for her in that moment. You know, we do these stories and we just move on. It's really rare to revisit them and go back and ask people, what was that experience like for you? And I just can't help but wonder whether maybe I would have done things a little bit differently. Maybe I could have done more to to help her through it. It's the dilemma of these kind of whistleblowers that have to stay anonymous because of the risks to them. So often they're just alone. Is there is there more that I could have done to to support you as well?
3: You tried to do what you could. Like, um, I think I made it hard for people to like support me through it because I I really just was getting through it and didn't want to dive too deep into it because it would have made it more and more difficult to do. I think, I mean, to be completely, like, transparent and honest, when you won an award, I think The Guardian won an award for the Nauru Files. Um, I felt some various feelings. I thought it was great, like, it's amazing. I'm, I'm so happy to have been a part of it. But again, I felt like I also wasn't a part of it. Um, And I think that's just feelings you have to deal with when you're anonymous.
4: One thing Simone has always said is that she never wanted the story to be about her. By leaking those files, she wanted to draw attention to the stories of the people held on Nauru and put a stop to the separation of families seeking asylum. So here I am sitting in a neat apartment in Sydney's west, to hear the story of one of those families who were on Nauru at the same time as Simone. Maria's a refugee from Iran. She's in her 60s, and when she talks, you listen. For her and her daughter Rose, the memories of Nauru clearly live close to the surface. In
5: the Nauru, what I see in the Nauru, the tent is the plastic, you know, is so, so, so hot.
4: Mother and daughter came by boat in 2013, fleeing religious persecution in Iran. That's why we can't use their real names. Their arrival was just days after then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd decreed that no asylum seeker who came by boat would ever live in Australia. Maria and Rose had no idea that the rules had changed. The women were taken to Nauru, their belongings in a single black rubbish bag. The whole thing felt like a nightmare. Oh, I I thought,
5: oh, my God, what happened after I understood what happened for us?
4: It's a very bad situation. Alone in the camp, the women felt unsafe. At one point, while she was sleeping, Rose says she was attacked by another detainee. The guards told her they couldn't help, which Maria says was a common response. Every officer said, If you don't like that,
5: come back to your country. Can't understood what happened, why I, I came here, because I have the problem with my government.
4: I am here. As I'm listening to her, I can't help but wonder if this attack was among the many incident reports that Simone filled out. In detention, Maria's health soon started to fail. She was deeply depressed, but something else was wrong too. I tell the people, please, my mom's sick, need a food. I want to help to mom. Say, no, no, your mom's not sick.
5: When we have a complaint to officer, please, you know that which happened, laughing me and think I'm crazy. You don't believe
4: it. Say to me, you are crazy. Eventually, Maria had to be medevaced to Australia because of a serious heart issue and her shattered mental health. Rose was desperate for any information about her mother, but because she was still in detention, she was largely kept in the dark. Her brother Daniel and their father, still based overseas, were also cut off from news.
1: To be honest, uh, every day we was waiting to be heard about my mom just uh, die. Because whatever we hearing about the Nauru, about another families, it was very bad situation.
4: After Maria was released from hospital, she and Rose were bounced from detention centre to detention centre, but Maria says that her health never really recovered. The threat of being returned to Nauru hung over the two of them, until finally they were released into community detention in 2016. Daniel remembers when the Nauru files made headlines that same year. He didn't want to imagine what his mum and sister went through on that island,
1: I remember that when I just saw that news, I just escaped. I don't want to read it, to be honest, because uh, I'm in that situation. I've, I mentally I was like, um, just escape, like um, don't want to talk, don't want to listen, to not understanding or imagining my mom or my, my sister, what's what's what they are doing there. I was in the deny situation mentality.
4: But the leak also made the reality of offshore detention impossible for Australians to ignore.
1: It was very little light and hope. The people inside the Nauru was looking someone at least talk about Nauru because the feeling that these people in the Nauru are forgetted.
4: The family was finally reunited in 2019 when Daniel and Farhad, Maria's husband of more than 30 years, arrived in Australia. The men were able to claim asylum and later become citizens because they came to Australia by plane, not boat. But Maria and Rose are still in limbo and still face the prospect of being deported from the country.
5: I have the one nightmare every night. I hear, I, I saw the immigration take me and my daughter. We are going, my family is separate. Just I cry and I shouting. please,
4: please. Enough, enough to enough. And that's why this family is taking the risk to tell their story, in the hope that the government will end the decade-long visa limbo and stop the separation of families that Simone so feared. That is my kids, that is my daughter, that is my husband. Tell the government,
5: how can you separate the family together? Why? Please, please, I need the Australian people and help me.
1: Please ask... Explain, these kind of families are here. What's the plan? Just just that's a simple question.
4: We put questions to Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill about family separations, but received no response. The Department of Home Affairs told Background Briefing that regional processing is subject to considerable external scrutiny and the government of Nauru is responsible for asylum seekers at the centre. The Nauru Processing Centre remains open. As we were reporting this story, we learned that a new group of asylum seekers was taken to the island in September this year. The group of 11 people includes a 17-year-old. They're Tamil speakers, and one of them has attempted self-harm. These are the first people placed into offshore detention since 2014. When we asked about this, both the minister and the department declined to comment.
0: Now, this is how we're going to break the cycle of these criminal gangs and take control of our borders. People it's March 2023, and Simone is watching TV when she catches UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak making a declaration that brings her right back to Nauru. We've introduced tough new measures today to help us stop the boats. The new stop the boats. He sounds just like former Australian Prime Minister Tony Abbott, who a decade ago used that same slogan to propel the coalition to power. And we will make sure, like Australia and America, that if you've arrived here illegally, you will not ever be able to return.
3: I had like a a very emotional reaction. I mean, I got, I felt it in my body. I tensed up and just thought, oh God, it's happening again.
0: Australia's offshore processing model has served as an inspiration for the UK government and it is now attempting to set up its own version of Nauru in Rwanda. It must be the case that if you come here illegally, we can return you either to your own safe country or an alternative like Rwanda where your claim can be processed. When I first approached Simone about sharing her story, she was reluctant to speak publicly about her role in the Nauru files. But she decided to do it because of what's happening in the UK.
3: If you're going down this route, you're about to destroy people's lives. Um, and it were not deter people from seeking asylum. You will just separate families and destroy people's lives. And there has to be a more humane way to manage this
0: Back here in Australia, the Border Force Act that criminalised whistleblowing from inside the detention system has been watered down. But it still remains in place, which means people working inside the system who want to speak out are still at risk.
3: Now, I just worry that the restrictions will be tighter on media, on people working there. I worry that what's been learned is how to better stop people from finding out about what's going on there.
0: I just always think there are going to be people like you, though. Maybe I'm just too optimistic.
3: (laughs) I hope so, and I hope they don't make it harder than it already was to make the decision and actually whistleblow. I also hope that people working there do see the value and need for... Sharing what's going on there.
0: Life on Nauru feels very distant now.
3: I've gone on to just live my life basically. <laughs> um, I don't think about Nauru often anymore because it's painful. Um, but when I do, I'm happy that I I did what I did. But it doesn't dominate my existence either. Like it's not anything that defines me. Um, It's just something I did that needed to be done, that I don't regret. And now I just live my life.
2: Simone's story is part of a background briefing series on whistleblowers. To find out how other Australians like Simone have helped bring the biggest and dirtiest candles to light, head to the ABC Listen app and look for The Whistleblowers under Background Briefing. Background Briefing's sound producers are Leila Shuna and Ingrid Wagner. The reporters on this story were Paul Farrell and Madison Connaughton. Additional research by Lonnie Cooper. Sound engineering by Roy Huberman. Fact-checking by Tai King. Our supervising producer is Mario Christodoulou and I am the executive producer, Fanu Filali. You can subscribe to Background Briefing on the ABC Listen app. Thanks for listening.